Hello, and welcome to the Brain Break Room. I am, well, I almost just started talking about the episode before even introducing myself, but I guess I'll introduce myself now. Hello, I am your host, Dr. Sarah Taylor. I wanted to skip ahead to the topic because I'm very excited today. Not only are we talking about the brain, but we are talking about one of my favorite topics in neuroscience, which is how we process information about each other, social information in the brain, and what that means for our day-to-day life and what we can learn about the way we relate to each other by looking at the brain, which is super fun. So that's the little broad, sciencey, nerddom intro, but the the real, real reason why I decided to talk about this topic in particular is because of a Scottish sitcom called Still Game, and there's this uh, one scene where this lovely older Scottish woman named Isa was talking to two Scottish gents, Jack and Victor, and she had a piece of information that they really, really wanted to know. First of all, she's like has a reputation as a talker and also as a gossip in the community, but she had a piece of information they actually wanted to know, and the entire joke was that it took her so long to get there. But the reason it took her so long to get there was because she was talking about how she knew this bit of information. And along the way, she talked about just about everybody and their cousin. She must have talked about 20 different people, how they knew each other. Like, I heard it from Mary, who was down at the shop because, you know, her boy did blah, da, 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 da. And then... It's just all of this information. I tried to find the script. It's not available online. And um, I could have done some detailed homework and go back and look at the sitcom for you, but I did not. But just trust me, it goes on for quite some time. She's talking about a lot of different people. And my initial reaction instead of being amused and frustrated the way Jack and Victor were that she was not getting to the point was actually whoa she's conveying a vast amount of knowledge and a really detailed understanding of the people in her community and how they are related she's actually not just a quote-unquote gossip but an expert on her social network And this kind of knowledge and skill actually predicts professional success, and we will get to that later on. But that's the topic we're going to talk about today, social networks and how they are represented in the brain. So first, I'm going to start with how the social network is represented represented in the brain generally. Then I'm going to talk about differences in social network positions. So we each kind of have slightly different roles in our social networks. And that can mean different things for how we move through the world and how we get treated and that sort of thing. 
Um, and then finally, I'm going to talk about differences in the brain between individuals with different social network positions and knowledge. So that's the big ol' overview. So first, how is the social network represented in the brain? I was very excited when I looked this up because one of the first things that comes up is the default mode network, which is my favorite network in the brain. The default mode network is a group of brain regions that activate and deactivate in synchrony with each other, which is just how we identify a network in general. But this special network is really cool because it's actually most active when we're doing nothing, which is why it's called like the default mode. I have little quotations that you can't see me doing right now, but it's called the default mode because when you're just kind of sitting daydreaming, um, you aren't completing a task with any particular goal in mind. That is when the default mode network is most active, and it actually becomes less active when we do even the most simple things like concentrate on something in front of us or try to remember a phone number, which is really interesting. So one of the big questions we have is like, okay, so what What does it do? It can't just be like the do nothing network that doesn't make much sense so the answer to that which we're still trying to figure out but the answer to that lies in the special cases when you are actively doing something and the default mode network actually comes alive and increases in activity so these things include thinking about other people thinking about the past, um, some other things as well, but also thinking about your social network, which is why I'm here talking about it to you today. But the coolness does not stop there because researchers have shown that different types of information about your social network are related to different regions within the default mode network. So um, there are a few different types of information that you might, I don't know, find important when you're thinking about people you're connected to. You might think about what your personal relationship is to them, whether it's a family member, coworker, acquaintance, that sort of thing. You might also think about how close you are and also what their personality is like. And so starting from the top, there is an area called the medial parietal cortex that processes that information about your personal relationship to people in your network. So just going to break down that brain region name. So medial means that it's in the middle of your brain, as in closer to your nose than to your ear. And then your parietal cortex is in the back half of the top part of your brain. So it's closer to the middle in that parietal cortex region. And it's a sub-region of the parietal cortex that is involved with remembering people and remembering places. And now we know that it also stores information about your relationships to people. So the second aspect of social network information that we might 
think about when thinking about our social network is how closely you are related to someone. So like a friend versus a friend of a friend. And this is one of the most interesting things, I think, because an area called the retrosplenial cortex is associated with social network distance. And why that is so interesting is because the retrosplenial cortex is where spatial information is processed, like physical space and physical distance. So it means that your brain is processing how close you are to someone in terms of your relationship, similarly to how it processes and stores information about physical distance in your environment and that sort of thing, Um, which is pretty neat. Also, when you think about even like I can't use non-physical distance words to talk about the social network distance because we, one, use the word distance. We also say how close you are to someone and all of that language. I just think it's really cool, maybe because, um, you know, I just had the interview with the lovely Cindy Weinstein, but I'm kind of stuck on how the language we use to describe social network relationship distance is the same language that we use to describe physical distance and that is mirrored in the representation in the brain which is so cool shout out to cindy for always making me think about words in a new way how lovely how lovely was she okay oh i love you cindy okay so the final default mode network area that was related to social network information is the medial prefrontal cortex. So that's in the very front of your brain, close to the midline drawn up from your nose. So like in your forehead, drawn up from your nose. That's where it would be. And this area seems to process personality traits of people from your network. So to recap, social network information is processed using this group of brain regions that is most active when we're just sitting around daydreaming in different types of social network information, like how close you are to someone, what their personality is like, what your relationship is to that person are stored in different areas in the default mode network. Okay, so now we're going to go on to the next section, which is much, much briefer because it's not in the brain. But we're going to talk about differences in social network position. So back to Isa. Isa, the gossip, the busy, nose body, busy body, <laughs> not nose body. <laughs> um, Isa, the busybody, is actually in this position in her social network that we call a broker. So brokers connect the otherwise unconnected and they coordinate behavior and translate information between groups. And brokers, it's a really special position. It actually predicts professional success. This ability to connect people that otherwise would not be connected is a really important skill. I also want to shout out some non-fictional characters. My mother-in-law, Sally, and my aunt, Lolly, 
are incredible, incredible brokers. They are so good at connecting people, whether it's based on personality, based on similar interests, and just have this amazing store in their head of all of these people they've met, even for a second, all of these people, and just are so good and I think constantly striving to connect people, which I think is is a really beautiful goal. So shout out to Sally and Lolly. What wonderful brokers you are. Moving on from brokers, there's also this idea of how central people are in a social network. There's low centrality and high centrality. And high centrality people are kind of what it sounds like. You have many direct connections and are connecting lots and lots of different groups versus low centrality people. You might have more indirect connections. You're kind of on the fringe. You're likely not kind of constantly coordinating between people. The really cool thing about this centrality concept is that people with low centrality in social networks actually have a better and more accurate view of the network because they're paying equal attention to everyone in the network versus high centrality people are focused on other high centrality people. Without a social network map, I think it's hard to conceptualize this idea of centrality But I think about like a party where there are kind of people, the people milling around um, and just kind of watching, maybe getting up to refill a drink or like go to the snacks or whatnot, but are mostly kind of watching what's going on versus the people that are really in the center of conversation and really driving most of the talking and that sort of thing. This concept of this centrality network makes sense to me when I think about that party and think about, for instance, um, my husband would be this low centrality metaphor person where he does a lot of listening. And so I think he has a much better idea of all of the different conversations that are happening and who's talking to who and who's (laughs) sitting at the charcuterie board and not talking to anyone and that sort of thing versus the people that are right in the thick of it, right in the middle of those conversations, which I might be, I consider myself a mid-centrality person, but those high-centrality people are probably just really focused on the people that they're talking to directly and maybe less aware of everything else that's going on around them. So hopefully that metaphor works for you as well. But that's this concept of centrality. Really interesting thing, just a little nugget related to centrality is that people that have a lot of indirect connections, so they have a lot of like friend of a friend, they're treated more favorably in the social network and people don't gossip about them, which is kind of just a little fun fact. We could probably spend an entire episode going into 
the psychology behind that and in the group psychology behind that but I think that that is another episode but there is a little nugget for you okie doke so with that we are going to scoot on back to the brain because you know I cannot be helped I need to talk about the brain in order to talk about individual differences in how the social network and how social network information is represented in the brain. So the first thing to know is that a lot of what I'm going to talk about are differences in brain area volume and gray matter density. So volume is what it sounds like, just how big or small a particular brain region is. And gray matter density is easiest to understand when we talk about the difference between white matter and gray matter. So in the brain, you have your gray matter, which are the cell bodies of your neurons. And then you have white matter, which are the connections between these neurons that are covered in insulation that shows up white in images. That's why it's called gray matter and white matter, because it shows up gray and it shows up white. Sometimes there's different staining and it's completely flipped, but I think that is just to confuse students in neuroanatomy classes. That's not true. I'm just still salty. (laughs) That was a very difficult class. Um, But gray matter density just means how many cells, how many neurons or little processing units do you have in that brain region? So that's what we're going to be talking about. And one of the areas that shows these differences in volume is the orbital frontal cortex. So that is right above the eye sockets. It's frontal, so it's in the front of your brain, and then orbital is apparently another word for eye socket. So that's that's where that's where this brain region is. And there's a relationship between the size, the volume of this brain region and social network size. But it's not a simple relationship in terms of bigger orbital frontal cortex means a bigger social network. It is also related to your social cognitive abilities. So social cognition is just the ability to use and process social information. Pretty straightforward. It covers a lot, a lot of different skills and that sort of thing. We could talk about it for a long time. But how vol- voluminous, vol- vol- <laughs> how voluminous, ha, how voluminous the orbital frontal cortex is, is actually not just related to social network size, but also to social cognition. So if two people have the same social network size, but one has better social cognitive skills than the other, their orbital frontal cortex is going to be bigger than the person with not as good social cognition. But I think I think this is a great example of how social networks are tied to these social cognitive skills in a very cool way. 
Another region where you see some differences between people um, with different size social networks or different complexity of social networks and also with different social cognitive abilities is the amygdala. So this is a little almond-shaped brain area where a lot of things happen. First, it's associated with fear processing a lot, but also specifically to emotion-related social signals. It's related to motivation and also social values. So researchers found that both social network size, which is how many regular contacts you have with other people, and the number of networks you have within your social network, which is called social network complexity. So if those people are in turn related to each other in interesting ways, then you will have a bigger amygdala. The researchers also did a cool gut check that I think is just really good research because they did not only online social network size, so how many friends people had on Facebook, but also offline social network size, so the number of regular contacts that they had with someone in the last 30 days, and social support network size, so how many friends could provide social support. And all three of those things were related to gray matter density, so the concentration of cell bodies, little processing units, in the amygdala, which I think is is really cool because sometimes researchers will just use one of those measures. And I think this just shows that the amygdala is really important for social networks, no matter what kind of form they take. And then based on what the amygdala does for things outside of the social network, like track visual signals and social interactions like face expressions and gestures and that sort of thing means that if you have a larger amygdala, you are better at processing these nonverbal social signals. And that would be a definite advantage for someone with a complex social network. And also the amygdala um, tracks reward that's associated with social interaction And so if people have a bigger amygdala or higher gray matter density, they might find social interaction more rewarding, which would probably lead to them developing a richer social network. Okay, okay, okay. So that's talking about the size, size and strength of processing in individual regions. But just to call back to our friend, the orbital frontal cortex, the connection, how strong the connection is between the orbital frontal cortex and the amygdala predicts social network size. So that means these areas are talking to each other and working in coordination. And how much these areas are communicating seems to predict how big of a social network you have. So if you have a really small social network, these areas probably aren't talking to each other very much. And if you have a really big social network, these areas are probably talking to each other 
all the time because there's a lot of complex processing and types of social information that you are working with all the time. Finally, to bring it back to our beloved brokers, brokers in particular seem to use their theory of mind areas when connecting people more than people who aren't in this special broker role. So theory of mind is when you conceptualize someone else's mental state. So what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what their perspective might be. And so brokers seem to think more about someone else's mental state when they're passing on information or connecting other people than people who are not brokers. So this is once again a kind of special skill that these brokers are utilizing. So with that, hopefully... I have thoroughly convinced you that Isa and Sally and Lolly and the other social network experts and brokers in your world deserve more credit than they're getting. Maybe today is Social Network Expert Appreciation Day. With that, this episode comes to a close and I'm looking forward to seeing you next time here in the Brain Break Room. Bye, y'all.